We're continuing our teaching on Psalm 17. In our last teaching, we looked at just the first few verses, and we talked about the difference between biblical justice and social justice. I pray that that was a help to you. Um, it's a very convoluted and confusing issue when we talk about the social justice movement. But I tell you what, it's a very clear, simple, pure message when we get to the gospel, when we get to the word of God and what true justice is. And David in this chapter, just to review last week, is is crying out for justice. He has been accused. We see that in his history. Saul falsely accused him. Absalom falsely accusing him. People actually throwing rocks at him and cursing him as he's uh, traveling. And, and yet David rests and trusts in the Lord. He takes action and he and he receives the kingdom that God ordained for him, but he does it through godly measures rather than through evil measures, trying to, trying to create good systems through evil functioning is not God's way of doing things. So I want to encourage you to, if you haven't watched the last part, series, the last teaching for, uh, for on the first part of Psalm 17, go back and watch that and then come back to this. Uh, let's pray and then we'll start in verse 3. Lord, we thank you for part two of this message, and we pray that it would bring life to us. I pray that you would give me words to speak, fire words from heaven, that life would pour out of this message and give us the ability to uh, live a just life and to be just towards others and to receive the just heart and nature of God and that, that redeems us and rescues us from our own unjust ways. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As we said last week, this is a very legal chapter. It, it, it speaks in legal terms, here a just cause. Uh, my lips are free from deceit. In other words, I'm, a, I'm a, a true witness. Verse two, let my vindication come. The word vindication we talked last week is the word sentence. Let my sentence come. I'm gonna stand before the judge and he will sentence me either guilty or innocent. And the results of those of my case will be not only heard, but be the, the, the results of that case will be brought into reality. He trusts God with the answer, even though he's willing to work himself for the forms of justice. But the first work that we do in seeking justice is to come before God, to hear his heart, his nature, his character, his desires, his agenda for us in our desire for justice in the world today. And one of the things we see in this chapter that I think is is, is so prof profound is, 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 is the physical nature of it, not only the legal nature, but the physical nature of this. Uh, just take a quick look at this, and it might be a little complicated to follow this, and it's going to move real fast. But in verse 1, he talks about lips of deceit. And in verse three, he says, my mouth may not, that my mouth may not transgress. Verse four, by the words of your lips, verse 10, they speak arrogantly. And I, I want to say to you, there's a very, very physical nature to the cry for justice. When you're wounded, when you're falsely accused, when somebody has lied to you, when somebody brings you falsely into that, maybe be at work or in your family or in your community or in your church or or just it could be even on social media that you're that you're lambasted and put down that 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 you see that it's a very physical thing here it's you you feel the emotion of it but that emotion affects your body well let's go on not only the first one was lips or mouth the second one David talks about in this passage is your ears verse one hear God give ear speaking over the ear twice there and then in verse six incline your ear hear my Word. So he's speaking of his lips. He's feeling that my mouth has to speak this form of injustice. I have to cry it out. And then ears, I, I want to hear God's word, but I also want God to hear my cry. Then number three, he talks about the eyes. Verse two, 
Let your eyes behold what is right. The cry for justice is, God, see. See what's happening here. See this racism. See this uh, injustice. See, see, see this uh, abortion clinic. See these things doing these evil things. See, God. See, let your eyes behold. But not only that, as God's eyes are beholding the evil with a desire to, for, the, for the prayer to see God bring justice to that realm in life. But not only that, in the middle of that, there's verse 8 says, keep me as the apple of your eye. In other words, keep me in right relationship with you. Keep me intimate with you. Keep me in love and communion with you. When the world around me is falling into these false forms of justice, allow me to see your heart and your nature. Keep me in the center. Uh, the Hebrew for this, many Hebrews writers, would uh, translators look at this word and they say, keep me as the pupil of your eye, the very center of your eye. The word pupil, obviously, as you know, can be used both ways, the, app, the pupil of your eye, but also one being taught by the Lord. As the Lord's eye is upon us, we're being taught, we're seeing into his eye. We're, we're asking his eye to see justly, but we're asking us to see his eye and, and see how he sees us. You see, if God sees us, or in other words, or I don't mean to say it this way, if, if we see how God sees us, our hearts will be content and full of joy. But if we're confused about how we're perceived, then we begin to hear the voices of the world that might falsely accuse us of being something we're not. So we look to how God sees us. We look to how God feels about it. And that does something to our emotions and it does something physically to our bodies. What I'm saying here today is that our, that our emotional life is followed by our, our physical bodies. We tense up, our heartbeat increases, we, we begin to sweat, we, our pupil dilates in a certain way, headaches begin to happen, high blood pressure happens. See, our bodies are affected. There was a book written about this, not a Christian book, a secular book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's a, it's a, a scientific view of seeing how certain activities in the world, stresses and, and fears and anxieties cause the body, even to the point, some will say, forming things like ulcers and cancers and tumors that the, that the body keeps the score. And, and David is understanding that long before the scientists understood it. David was saying that, that I need my lips to, to, to speak truth, but I need to hear the lips of God. I need to hear God's voice, but I need God to hear my cry. I need God to see me and the unjust situations around me, but I need to see God and how he sees me. He goes on, he talks about his own heart. Verse three, you've tried my heart. You, you, you get into the most intimate places of my body. You calm my heartbeat down when I'm being accused. I remember so many times where somebody would email me and say, you did this, you did that. I, I got an email recently that somebody accused me of something that said I accused them of doing this 50 years ago. Well, 50 years ago, I wasn't even a teenager yet. And, and so it would be impossible for me to do something that was that diabolical, and so it was a false accusation. But sometimes when you read or see or hear false accusations, your heartbeat raises and, and, and you begin to feel a little bit of the nervous system engaging. And so, so David is saying, try my heart, see this heart, look inside me. And, and in verse 10, he goes, he, he contrasts it with, says they close their hearts. They don't want God to examine their heart. They, 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 they want to, to so rally for so-called justice, but they don't really want their heart to be examined. Uh, are they living in the truth? Are they examining the situations around them rightfully? Or are they living in false accusations themselves and therefore don't want their own hearts to be examined? 
David goes on, even I'd say the fifth element of the body we see in this chapter here is, is found in verse five. My steps, my feet have not slipped. He's talking about feet here. In verse 11, there's another contrast. They have surrounded, now surrounded our steps. So you see this heart cry of David to walk in biblical justice and truth. And he's surrounded now by people that refuse to call that a truth or reality. It's it's calling evil good and good evil, and, and we're surrounded in culture by that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are and I are surrounded by lies, by media, by political parties, by movements that are taking place in universities, by what's happening even in, in our elementary school systems, that's happening in the world around us. We are, our steps are surrounded, but hallelujah, David says, my feet have not slipped. Why? Because he's keeping his eyes on Jesus. He's keeping his ears open. He's keeping his heart palatable, uh, malleable to the things of God. And his feet now are walking in the right direction. His hands are doing the right thing. That's number six here. We'd say his hands in verse seven, it says, uh, I seek refuge at your right hand. And that's in contrast to verse 14 or in conflict with verse 14. Deliver me from men by your hand as their hand is striking against us as, as Saul took that spear and threw it at David. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. You see how physical this thing is. It's not just uh, intellectual. It's not just doctrinal. It's not just uh, understanding certain things and trying to go through the life the best way you can. It's feeling these things deeply. And out of these feelings come emotions, the heartbeat, the, the tears. That's a physical thing. Tears come out of the eyes. You, you hear words and it, and it wounds you. And so it's, it's very physical. And God designed us that way that we would feel things and that our body would be engaged in that so that as he heals the emotions, he heals the body. He brings rest. He brings peace. He brings comfort. He, he causes those things to take place in our heart and our emotion. When we turn our eyes to him, the headaches go away. When we turn our heart to him, the, 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 the high blood pressure goes away. You see, our bodies are connected to our soul and our soul is connected to our spirit. And we see miracles take place, not just divine intervention, but through the physicality of the way we were created in God's uh, economy of things. So, so several observations from Psalm 17. And I want to read from verse 2. We talked about verse 1 and 2 much in our last episode, but let me read verse 2 through the end one more time for you because I just love reading and going through the Word of God. The most important thing you'll hear today is not my commentary on Scripture. It's the Scripture itself. And oftentimes we don't pay attention when we're going through long ver verses and chapters and we miss maybe God speaking something so real and so deep to you. So listen carefully as we read these words together. Verse 2. All right, let's start from the beginning. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Verse 1, attend unto my cry. Give ear to my prayer and from my lips free of deceit. From your presence, let vindication come. From your, Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man by the work, word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I will call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from the adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence. 
my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of this world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure and they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to infants. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. And the first observation we had about this is how physical it is. The second observation is this, is the, the dynamic contrast between the unrighteous and the righteous, between true righteousness and justice and a false kind of taking justice into your own hands without living out of the truth. And, and so we see the second contrast here is a contrast between false, accusing, lying slanders and those who are right with God, living rightly and living in true biblical justice. Look at this contrast. It says, they, their mouths, they speak, with their mouths, they speak arrogantly. But here's the contrast. But my lips are free from deceit. And a little bit later, we're going to be talking about how can David say that? Uh, a, a man who lied, a man who deceived, a man who committed adultery, a man who committed murder. How could he say his lips are free from, uh, from, from deceit and that his heart was living in righteousness? We're going to see that at the end of this message. And I think it can really help edify. The second contrast we see is they set their eyes to cast us down. They set their eyes. They, they look at us and trying to find a way. That's in verse 11. They set their eyes to cast us unto the ground. But the contrast is the eyes of the Lord are looking upon us and he's seeing us as the apple of our eye. Verse 8, keep me as the apple of our eye. And also as it speaks about being cast down to the ground, one of the other contrasts is in verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. The word confront there is in Hebrew is to bring down. So here they set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. And when you believe in true biblical justice and you trust in the Lord, the Lord will confront them. The Hebrew word there means to bring them down, to bring their lies down, to bring their false accusations down, to bring the the... The, the, this whole movement that's happening in the world today to bring it crashing to the ground and biblical truth and biblical justice could rise once again to its proper place in culture. The, another thing we see is they close, uh, they, they close their hearts, uh, but, it, but, it, but it says, you tend to my heart and you, you, you tried my heart and you found nothing. You see the contrast, so they're closing their hearts, but God is looking at our hearts and finding nothing unjust. Our steps, you see contrast here in steps. We talked about our feet just a moment ago. They are they have surrounded our steps, but, but my steps have held fast and not slipped. Amazing dynamic contrast between true biblical justice and that which is unrighteous in society today. The, the, the wicked surround me, they're deadly enemies, but I'm surrounded by the shadow of your wings. What a beautiful contrast. The, the, the enemy tries to surround me, but it's really God who is surrounding me. We see great encouragement when these false accusations are coming against us, but then we see God's righteous truth. He, he is keeping us. He is delivering us. He is one who's casting these 
vain imaginations and these lies to the ground so that you and I don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to stress. We don't have to stay up late at night. We don't have to rehearse time and time again. We don't have to defend ourselves from all these accusations. We can say, God, I trust in you and I believe you'll bring me out of these traps and these pitfalls and you'll put my feet upon a solid rock and my feet won't slip and my eyes will see you and my ears will hear you and my heart will be full of the glory of God because I will know this truth that you have kept me as the apple of your eye and under the shadow of your wings. David sees that we as mere mortals, and we should see this as well, uh, can't figure out, can't work out, can't solve, can't try to uh, justify ourselves in all of these accusations that come against us from Satan, from the world, from secular society, from even times Satan and the, his voices that come into our own mind and our own heart, but if we put God first, like like last week when we looked at Daniel, we saw seeing the Ancient of Days on the throne. When we see this throne of God, it changes us. David, if you would just turn ahead to Psalm 50, David in Psalm 50 sees this truth. This is where he gets his confidence. This is where he can trust in the Lord. You see, because some of you listening to me right now, you're going like, wait a minute, you're just saying trust in God, believe in God, and he will vindicate you, and he will be your righteous judge but don't we have to work for ourselves? Don't we have to defend ourselves? Yes, there is a decree, but it starts first at the throne room of God, getting our eyes on him, hearing his just decrees, knowing that we are innocent before the Lord. And when we are innocent before the Lord, we can take action from a pure heart, as David did, even though he had these false accusations. Did you see how much mercy he had on them? He had mercy on Saul. He had mercy even on Absalom, crying when Absalom's life was lost. Shimei, he, the one who was, that was cursing him and, and calling him having bloody hands, he, the, and Abishai wants to kill him. And, and David says, no, let, let him speak. You see, because David is doing this thing and it's found in, in verse one of Psalm 50. He says, Almighty God, the God uh, who speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the setting down, out of verse two, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth below that he may judge his people. Gather me, you faithful ones, and make a covenant before me with sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is a judge. Hear, O my people, I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. What he's saying here is, if you're righteous and you come into me and you apply my holy righteousness to your heart, the imputed righteousness of God, I'll make you clean, I'll make you holy. But if not, you won't be vindicated. And if you're living in wickedness, you're gonna find that I will even testify against you. We hear so often how there are voices in the world of culture around us. We hear so often that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and rightly so hearing this because these are truth. But we never, or I would say we rarely hear that God himself is the one accusing us. God himself can be the one testifying against us, speaking from the throne, from the throne of heaven of our own guilt and condemnation. If we have not been brought under the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of the cross being applied to our heart, then we are still under condemnation. I know it's glib and easy to say there's no condemnation, but it's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus can be the 
apply the blood of his righteousness. And when we stand before the throne of God, we stand before him clean. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But but how do we get to that place where where we see God on the righteous throne and we're crying out to him, Lord, judge me righteously. How can we be judged righteous if we're not? How can we be called pure and clean, innocent? How can the sentence from heaven come down, being clean, being unguilty, being not guilty, being found uh, innocent of the charges against us? How can we be when some of those things are truths? How can David see his heart as being innocent when he's done all these wicked things in his own life? How, do, how does David, who, as I said just a moment ago, has lied and murdered and committed adultery, speaking of himself in such innocent terms? I want to track with you on this for the next few moments we have together. And starting in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, a very interesting passage of scripture here, a very strange one, and could be, if we're not careful, a very confusing one. It says uh, about people who come to God, and he, picking you or I, he who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Wait a minute. We're to believe in a God who makes right, who justifies, who calls just, those who are ungodly. That, that doesn't make any sense. You see, in, in, in our understanding of things, we see, we see the, the, the missionary or, or maybe the nun who has worked in the slums for 40 years and at the end of her life, she's still feeling under condemnation and guilt and shame and she has no true relationship with Christ. And, 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 and we say, well, no, she deserves to be justified. She lived a life that's just right, and she should be justified before God because of all this work that she's done. Now, now take another scenario. Here's a prisoner, and, and, and for 60 years of his life, he's, he's stolen, and he's lied, and he's cheated, and he's robbed, and, and, and maybe even he's killed, and he's now in prison. He's been in a 40-year sentence, and, 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 and he walks into a chapel service there, and he hears somebody giving his testimony how he met Christ, and he kneels in his folded chair, metal chair there in the concrete floors of his prison, and he cries out to Jesus, rescue me, save me. Lord, I'm guilty, I'm full of shame. You see, in our mindset, the, the one, the prisoner, doesn't seem like he should be justified. It's like justifying the ungodly. But the one who is doing all these good works and is and, and, and is devoted to helping other people. We see them as the one who deserves to be justified. That whole system of justice is a man-made justice, even if you would maybe have a satanic form of justice that we're justified by our own righteousness. But the truth is both the prisoner in the cell and the, the nun or the religious worker uh, trying to be justified by morality and good works, both of them are ungodly. One sin causes us to be ungodly. Even, even being born in sin, to, to Adam's sin nature being in us, causes us to be ungodly. You see, we measure it like this, like here's the prisoner and he's down here, and way up here is the, the, the Christian or the, the social worker or the nun or the religious person who's doing all these good deeds. Well, the problem is that looks like it's a far distance of righteousness or unrighteousness, godliness or ungodliness. But in reality, when you look at how godly, how, 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 how righteous God is, that, that it goes to the highest heavens, that it's immeasurable, then this thing from far distance, like when you move away from the earth in a spaceship, the earth eventually disappears. That difference disappears, and all of us are shut up. The law shuts us up all in our sin. We are all, uh, our, our best works are as filthy rags, the Bible says. All of us are condemned to death. All of us are 
our actions have been punishable because we're so far from the righteousness of God. And it brings a reality then that nothing we can do in our own strength. Philippians, turn there to the New Testament, to the book of Philippians. I think this is so important for us to understand Philippians chapter 3 and beginning to read in verse 4. This is Paul speaking, and, and, and he's kind of comparing himself to that nun, that missionary nun that I was talking about that maybe served in the slums for 40 years and did all these good deeds and, and feels maybe by those efforts they should be justified. And our minds may be echoing that sentiment, they, they should be justified. But, but Paul says this in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, there it is. I have reason to believe I've served 40 years. I've done these good deeds. I've, I've, I went to Sunday school. I taught Sunday school. I read my Bible. I prayed. I tithed. Uh, I'm not that man who spent 40 years in prison and just says one prayer and thinks himself to be justified, even though he's been ungodly. Paul says, oh, I have reason to be, have confidence in my flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have even more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecuting the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now we know he could not really truly call himself blameless. He had pride, he had arrogance, but, but by the demands of his own nature of law, of being good, of of following the, the jot and tittle of the law, that he felt himself blameless in these things. But when he sees Jesus on that road to Damascus, all of that changes. He sees all of that right, so-called righteousness. He sees it now through a totally different lens. He sees it through the eyes of Christ, and he changes his whole tune here. Look at verse 7. But whatever I gain, uh, whatever gain I had, in other words, the gain of righteousness, the gain, the check marks, the the raising yourself up of a bootstrap, the pulling up yourself on a ladder of, of self-righteousness. I gained certain things, but now after seeing Jesus so high, so exalted, so lifted up, so pure, so holy, so different than me, now I count all those things, all those self-righteous things, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. I, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered all things, and I count them all as rubbish. Another translation says as dung, manure. I count them as, 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 as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What is he counting as rubbish? He's counting his self-righteousness, the, the, the works of the missionary, the works of the good Sunday school teacher, the works of the person who's unredeemed, not blood-bought, not repentant, not, not justified, not understanding they're godly, ungodly, and they need to be justified by a work not of their own. And Paul says, I count all that stuff that I had before, all that worldly view, I count it as dung. I count it as rubbish. It's it's worthless. It's no good. And it won't save me. It won't redeem me. It won't rescue me. And, and Paul later on calls himself even the chief of sinners. Well, wait a minute. He, he wasn't he, he wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't an adulterer. He wasn't a fornicator. He he observed the law uh, in, in a way that that appeared blameless to those around him. He, he he certainly could not be considered a chief of sinners based on a worldly view of understanding sin. But he calls himself the chief of sinners. Why? Because he sees the sinfulness of his self-righteousness. He calls that being the chief of sinners because he thought he could get saved by that. No one thinks they're getting saved by adultery or fornication. Uh, sexual immorality, but but you can think you're getting saved by being that nun, by being that Christian worker, by being that 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 Sunday school teacher, by doing good deeds. You think that's uh, 
going to add to your own righteousness. Paul said, no, that's that's rubbish. That's no good. I count it all as lost. That has no value. And so whether it be the 40-year the, the, the nun working in the slums or the, the prisoner on the, in, 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 uh, in a cell, both of those people, all of us need to bow before a holy God and say, God, I am ungodly and I need you to make me righteous. You have to justify me. How does this take place? Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. You don't have to turn there, but let me read this to you. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All and everywhere. I've underlined that in my Bible. All people, those who seemingly are horrific and those who seem righteous, all people everywhere to repent. Why? For he has set a day when he will judge the world, all people everywhere, those who seem godly and righteous and those who seem unrighteous and filthy, all of them will be judged. They will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Martin Luther called it by the man of his own choosing, that God chose Christ Jesus, his own son, to be the man of justice, the one he would judge the world through. Justice comes by this man. Justice doesn't come through Education justice doesn't come through exclusively through court systems. Justice doesn't fully come through political systems. Justice doesn't come through uh, different stories on media. The, the core of justice, all true justice, all biblical justice, is birthed by the justice by the man. I love that phrase, justice by the man. How do we get justice? It's by that man. Where do we find justice? By that man. How am I vindicated? By that man. How is my sentence communicated? By that man. How am I set free? By that man. That one man, Christ Jesus, is, is the man of the undoing of our ungodliness and making us righteous in him. How does this happen? Second Corinthians 5, 21. Uh, how, how do we who are ungodly, all of us, people everywhere, how, how are we judged by the world through the justice by this one man. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he, speaking of the Father God, made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel in one sentence, that Jesus, by the Father's will, became sin for us. He, he, became, he became that righteousness of uh, 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 of God, and he brought us into that righteousness. He, 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 I'm sorry, he didn't become righteous, but he, he, he was the righteous one, and he became, the righteous one became sin for, for us so that we can see that whoever believes in him who justifies the ungodly. He's not saying he looks at an ungodly person and goes, I justify their behavior, and I allow them to go in that. What it's saying there in that, that Romans passage is he takes someone who's ungodly, and he justifies them by taking their sin upon himself. If they confess their sins and do what uh, Acts 17 says, repent, they repent and turn from that sin. And they trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and what it says here, he took him uh, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the imputed righteousness, the exchanged life. He takes our sin upon him and nails it to the cross, buries it in the tomb, never to be raised again. And then he puts upon us his own cloak of righteousness, his garment of righteousness. So now we stand, even though sinners ungodly in our own selves, we now stand righteous. And not only does that, but he transforms our hearts. So these ungodly behaviors begin to slip away. It's the go and sin no more that Jesus taught in his own lifestyle. Why does Jesus do that? 
Romans 3.26 says this, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Look at this, Jesus, God still, still testifies against sin, he's just. He still condemns sins because he's just. He still brings the full wrath uh, because he's just. He still pays has people pay the penalty of sin because uh, the wages of sin is death. He doesn't move off his justice one iota, not one word moved, not one thought removed from the full and thorough justice of God. But all of his just uh, his justice is brought into the to, to this justifier, the the man of his own choosing, justice by this man. But, but on Jesus is placed all the just wrath, all the just punishment, all the just wages of death, all of that was placed upon Jesus Christ. And now he places upon us the life of Christ, the redemption of Christ, the freedom that's found in Christ. Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And is, he's a justifier of the one, that's the one, who, who is the one who believes that God can justify us, even though we're ungodly, even though our own, our best efforts to be righteous is filthy rags, that he can justify us. This is so different than what you're hearing today in media and in the, our education systems and in our culture and on social media. You're, you're hearing that really there, 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 there can be no justification. Things can't be made right. Black and white can't come together. Rich and poor can't come together. And God's form of justice, we are all sinners. We are all broken. We are all in need. And only Christ alone can justify us. Going back to Psalm 17, I think this is why David doesn't have to himself condemn Saul, condemn Absalom, condemn Shimei. He doesn't have to condemn them himself because he knows God is the one who judges. He either speaks guilt or he speaks innocence based upon faith in Jesus Christ. David looked ahead prophetically and trusted in the, the ancient of days and saw what God could do in his own life. And he had mercy on others because God had mercy on him. So true justice is having mercy on others, mercy on the poor, mercy on people unlike ourselves, love and kindness and, and love, loving tenderness towards others, giving and sharing, being one with others in Christ is, is the form of justice that God has, very much unlike the worldly form of justice where there's no redemption, there's no transformation of the heart. And so we need to, as Christians, stick to the biblical form of justice and be careful about what we hear and what we receive into our hearts in these ungodly forms of what's called capital S, social, capital J, justice in the world today. God's justice is very different than that. I put my hand on the word of God. I pledge my allegiance to that, to the God of this book, and to believe that God is the God of justice. And if I will look to him, and if I will receive his truth into my heart, I will be a man of justice, and I will work for justice in the world today. And it'll be very different from this unredemptive type of justice that is being pronounced across the land today. Church, I want you to live in biblical justice. I want you to avoid false forms of social justice. I want you to find true justice that comes from God because that's what makes the world a better place. That's what cleanses the world. That's what heals the world. That's what brings the world to its highest place in the form of finding life in Jesus Christ. Redemption, whether it be from self-righteous works or from ungodly behavior, all of us are shut up in our sins and we need Jesus Christ to heal us. And when he heals us, 
vertically, it heals us. Horizontally, it heals us vertically. It brings us to a place of healing with our brothers and sisters as well. Let me pray for you in closing. Father, in part one, part two of Psalm 17, we have been doing our best to attempt to describe the difference between true justice and what the world calls justice today, a form of hopelessness, a form of despair, a form of anger, a form of vengeance, a form of unforgiveness. But I thank you that your righteousness speaks of a better word. It speaks of a justice, of a truth, of, of a firm foundation where there can be in society healing and reconciliation and peace and joy and true love. And I thank you that these are found in the gospel. They are found not in our own self-righteous works. They're not found in our own angry, sinful behavior. It's found in coming to the truth of the gospel that in Christ, you justify us. Unjust as we are, you, you stay just, but you justify us by Christ dying for us on the cross, taking our sin. And we're thankful for that. Sometimes we overlook that because it seems so uh, yesterday. It seems so, well, yeah, in the past we were forgiven. No, we're forgiven today. We're made just today. We stand before holy God only because Christ, you keep us under the shadow of your wings. You keep us as the apple of your eye. And we're thankful for this. We say yes and amen. Thanks for listening to Psalm 17. We look forward to joining with you very soon on Psalm 18. Mm -hmm.